0: Welcome to the Health Leaders Women in Healthcare Leadership Podcast. I'm Melanie Blackman, Strategy Editor for Health Leaders. My guest for today's episode is Dr. Amy Compton Phillips, President of Clinical Care for Providence Health System, headquartered in Seattle, Washington. During our conversation, she offers insights on COVID learnings and improving patient safety and quality, and she also shares some background on her career and leadership advice. So without further ado, let's get to the conversation. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast, Amy. I'm really looking forward to speaking with you. This should be fun. To get us started, would you mind introducing yourself and sharing a little bit about your healthcare background?
1: As you mentioned, uh, Dr. Amy Compton-Phillips, I'm an internist by background. I actually started in practice uh, 30 years ago out on the East Coast. Started out in primary care, moved through a variety of administrative roles with Kaiser Permanente. Ended up as chief quality officer there before moving in 2015 over to Providence Health System as the chief clinical officer. So it's been quite a career.
0: So the first COVID-19 patient in the U.S. was cared for by Providence Health. What are the major learnings that the health system has hung on to since that patient was admitted to Providence Regional Medical Center Everett in Washington State in January of
1: 2020? Boy, that's a big question. We could go on for hours with that one. But, you know, I think the key lesson number one was that planning is the antidote to panic that when that first patient hit us fortunately we'd been working with our infection prevention team and our infectious disease clinical decision team monitoring the fact that there was this breakthrough infection in Wuhan and we'd learned that we'd had to have some kind of sensing system around the globe after Ebola you know we knew we would need to be ready and in fact because of the breakout infection in Wuhan We'd even been doing drills at some of our facilities, including at our Everett Hospital, to be ready for when and if the infection came to the US. And so the first patient came in, by the way, incredibly heads up diagnostics by the nurse practitioner who this patient originally came to, When he said that he had been in Wuhan, China, and had a fever and a cough. And she actually called the CDC and said, What do I do? So, very quickly, the person who saw the patient in the clinic knew to be prepared. The patient had gone home and then came back to the hospital when the test came up positive. And the entire hospital, the whole infrastructure from the EMTs to the people in the emergency room to the people in the clinic, were ready. They very calmly were able to handle this person with breakthrough infection. And back in those early days, we treated every person like they had Ebola, you know, with incredibly high level infection prevention processes in place. So, but we were ready and planning was the antidote to panic there. The next step that we had is we sat down and I remember pretty distinctly, it was late January, the patient came in. And then not very long after that, we had patients on cruise ships that were needing places to go get care. And we also provided facilities for patients on cruise ships coming back in. And as we were talking about it on a Saturday morning, we said, okay, what happens if this gets big? And that people start Googling on, do I have the novel coronavirus? And so we just started designing, actually, a very patient-centric, person-centric way for people to access care if they had COVID. And that kind of human-centered design thinking is what has absolutely stuck with us since then, that if we think about it from our consumers or our patients or our people that live in our communities, our neighbors' perspective, how do we make sure that we make intentional decisions in the healthcare system? so that we can be ready for how people wanna use our system. And I think that's actually been a huge learning for us to embed human-centered design early on in planning. And the third key learning that I would say is that teams matter, that we had very quickly, like the rest of the planet, shut things down. We went on to video capability, but because we realized that we're working alone together, that we were in our own Place, you know, whether if you're an administrator, you were at home, if you were working in one of our facilities, you you would be working in your office, but you had the door closed and you were working in your office unless you were taking care of patients. That we had to be very intentional about staying connected. And so we set up a series of huddles. Initially, they were every day. Then we'd have work groups during the day. Then we'd have our emergency operations center connecting back in the evening again, but having very clear methods to stay deeply connected during the crisis, even if you were only connected virtually. And so those, I think, were the three big areas that that we've embedded and will keep embedded. The planning is the end of the panic, making sure we understand the scenarios, that the human-centered design is a critical foundation for how we, how we reimagine the healthcare system moving forward, and that teams matter.
0: Oh, thank you so much for sharing that. So my next question is, it's hard to imagine what healthcare will look like post-COVID, but what can hospitals and health systems do right now to improve their patient safety and quality and expand it in that post-COVID world?
1: I think that COVID has given us time to think and pause and imagine differently than we would have without it. Very often, if you look back in history, pandemics have been threshold events. There's the before and after. There's the before and after the Black Death, right? That it really truly changed the way the society of the Middle Ages moved through the world. 1918 flu beforehand, and by the way, World War I was happening at the same time too, but between World War I and the 1918 flu, And we went from this era when the world was at war and fighting amongst itself to the roaring 20s where the future seemed bright. This is another threshold event. And the threshold event for healthcare is to have fee-for-service medicine focused on earning revenue through hospitals that then hospitals support ambulatory enterprises and end up with a poorly distributed, unequitable healthcare system where there's a significant number of bankruptcies and people who access care, to one in the future where we now know we need to solve for healthcare equity. We need to truly understand and work through the fact that the social determinants of health make a big difference in health outcomes, that not everybody needs a hospital, but probably everybody needs some access to high quality health and care. So As we think about the capacity for this to serve as a threshold event, now is the time for us to be doing the small tests of change and the pilots to make a healthcare system that's much more distributed, much more equitable, much more focused on moving knowledge, not people, getting care to where people live, work, and play versus being centered in big box stores in an urban environment. And I think that's exactly what we need to be focused on for the next five years. Because my suspicion is in 2030, healthcare is going to look very, very different than the way it does today.
0: And I think it's safe to say that even though so many negative things have come out of the COVID-19 pandemic, that there are a lot of positives, like the fact that we're innovating faster and that healthcare is changing for the better and we're, we're moving towards a more equitable health system. So that is really exciting.
1: I think that one of the real learnings for us is look what happened when the regulations on telehealth, on it being a considered in the past a capacity to increase healthcare costs and so was not covered particularly um, by CMS when the, in the Medicare program, when all of a sudden the regulators realized that if we didn't enable telehealth and we didn't have some kind of way to Reimburse for telehealth and streamline, simplify the regulations on where providers sit compared to where patients sit. That we wouldn't have had any healthcare at all, and um, by at least by April of 2020, when they realized that and they took away the hurdles that regulatory environments can create, it helped innovation blossom. So I hope that now as we move forward that the regulatory environment and healthcare providers together can say what are the few simple rules that we all agree to but allow for some experimentation and innovation in new models of care so that we can take advantage of the incredible digital and technologic innovations that are out there. We have to enable innovation otherwise we're going to keep getting stuck doing the same things over and over again.
0: We'll be back after this short break. Hi, I'm Alexandra Pechy, Revenue Cycle Editor at Health Leaders. Don't miss the Health Leaders Revenue Cycle Podcast, which drops the second Tuesday of every month. You'll get to hear Revenue Cycle executives sharing their innovative ideas and proven strategies for tackling big issues like price transparency, denials management, surprise billing, artificial intelligence, and so much more. Subscribe and listen to the Health Leaders Revenue Cycle Podcast on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Stitcher. Let's switch our focus over to your journey. So what originally drew you into working in the healthcare sector as a physician?
1: Well, I never wanted to do anything else. You know, I think there's a lot of doctors and nurses who, who were born to be in the profession that they're in, and I'm one of those. From the time I was in kindergarten, I never had an answer that was different than I want to be a doctor when people asked me what I wanted to do when I grew up.
0: I love that. And what has been your experience working as a woman clinical care leader?
1: My suspicion is it's not all that far off of any human being who is working as a clinical care leader. Although I do think that it has evolved over the past 30 years that I literally in the past, um, I remembered very distinctly in medical school at one point, when, when I'd been doing, it was back when we had to actually, you know, go into the library and pull journal articles on a young patient who had an encephalitis, a brain infection, and was in the ICU in a coma, and this was a woman in her late 20s, and nobody knew what was wrong with her, and I was looking at all the various potential options that her diagnosis could be to make sure that we were really working hard to understand and treat her appropriately, trying to get her back to herself again, and came across an article about rabies, how rabies could present this way. And so I went to the head of the service that I was on in infectious disease and said, you know, could this be rabies? Do we need to make sure we're protecting the healthcare workforce around her in case it is something contagious like that? And I remember him patting me on the head and saying, oh, Amy, you're so cute, and dismissing me and walking <laughs> away. And I I must say, I don't think that's happened since the late 90s. I haven't been uh, patted on the head and dismissed. So some things have definitely gotten better. You know, one thing that is different is that if you look at the healthcare workforce, it's about 75% women. The healthcare leadership is not really approaching that. It is fortunately getting closer and closer to 50% women, but there's something that I think continues to need to be it's women as well as people of color who have different styles who have different backgrounds ensuring that we create room opportunities training and mentorships to help get people who in the past haven't seen people like them in the C suite and helping not just decide you know quality but that in business and in strategy and in technology and in areas where we absolutely know it doesn't matter what your chromosome patterns are or what your face looks like in the mirror, your skill set in leading technology and tools and innovation shouldn't differ. And so we just need to recognize and create the capacity and the ability for people who look different than those that came before to lead into the future. And in fact, we will get more innovation and a more vibrant community when we do that.
0: Well, and going off of that, what advice do you have for women and others who want to serve in leadership roles
1: in the healthcare sector? Something that I think is different between women of my generation and men of my generation. And so, you know, I, I don't want to paint a broad brush to men and women in general, but there is a different approach to leadership that at least it seems to be in my observation in that. When there is a big job to be done, I often see men raising their hand and go, I can do that, right? And I often see women waiting to be asked. And it's been really interesting to me that even in my career, I've taken jobs because people reached out to me. I, I can't think of any job that I've taken because I reached out and asked for a different job or asked for help. So there's something that I think we need to Either if we're a leader looking for women to lead something or looking for a person of color or somebody who's not used to being taking point on a project that we need to be looking around for leadership and asking folks to step up, inviting them in to lead and not just waiting for people who raise their hands. I think it's just a really important way for us to continue to develop leaders that do look outside of what we might have traditionally seen as a leader in the past.
0: Well, Amy, thank you again so much for being here and for sharing your expertise with us.
1: It's absolutely my pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: And thank you, listeners, for joining us on the Health Leaders Women in Healthcare Leadership podcast. Until next time, keep taking care of your patients and each other.